Welcome to the Key to All Mythologies podcast, devoted to reading old books very slowly, discussing them very carefully, and concluding with more questions than answers. On this episode, we are finishing our series on Aristotle's On the Soul, with the second half of Book 3, where Aristotle claims, possibly, that there is, maybe, something of the soul, perhaps, which persists beyond death, in theory, and what persists of the soul might be thinking, potentially, or so they say. Can you think a thing in its being without recourse to any symbols? What kind of thought would this be? If something of the mind is indeed deathless, yet that deathless part is also not imagination, nor will, nor anything to do with language, nor body, nor any particular thought about anything at all, well, what the hell is it then? Join us as we try and think through the puzzles of thought Aristotle leaves in his wake. Now, here is Greg with the opening question. Yeah. Um, so just to get to the heart of it, I wanted to ask about Aristotle's probably like most controversial and also maybe misunderstood claim. There is something of soul separable from the flesh um, and has to do with thinking generally. And that's about as much as I can tell. So I'd like to really get into that. And it seems like book four is actually a good place to start uh, because we're really starting to draw out the way that intellect might have attributes or material. Okay. Uh, Greg, should I just read the first paragraph of chapter four? Yeah, let's start. Oh, sorry, chapter four. Let's work through it. Yeah. Okay. So Aristotle says, about the part of the soul by which the soul knows and understands, whether it is a separate part or not separate the way a magnitude is, but in its meaning, one must consider what distinguishing characteristic it has and how thinking ever comes about. If thinking works the same way perceiving does, it would either be some way of being acted upon by the intelligible thing or something else of that sort. Therefore, it, the soul, the thinking part of the soul, must be without attributes, but receptive of the form and in potency not to be the form, but to be such as it is. And it must be similar so that as the power of perception is to the perceptible thing, so the intellect to the intelligible things. Therefore, necessarily, since it thinks all things, it is unmixed, just as an an exagoras says, in order to master them, that is, in order to know them, since anything alien that appeared in it besides what it thinks would hinder it and block its activity. And so intellect has no nature at all other than this, that it is a potency. Therefore, the aspect of the soul that is called intellect, and I mean by intellect, that by which the soul thinks things through and conceives that something is the case, is not actively any of the things that are until it thinks. This is why it is not reasonable that it be mixed with the body, since it would come to be of a certain sort, either cold or warm, and there would be an organ for it, as there is for the perceptive potency, though in fact there is none. And it is well said that the soul is a place of forms, except that this is not the whole soul, but the thinking soul. And it is not the forms in its being at work, staying itself, but in potency. Yeah. So the most, I mean, the kind of a controversial claim, I guess, here is that the soul is pure potency, right? It has, it, it can potentially think all things, but it doesn't necessarily think, it can potentially think all things. Right, but it's not always and forever actively thinking one thing. Right. 
And so I, I think part of the reason Aristotle claims this is how far he is from something like modern science or from even the Enlightenment. So he doesn't think of thinking as at all or in any way a map. It's not like we're recreating the world inside of ourselves. Somehow like thinking really is thinking the thing that it, that you like it, the, when you think something, you really get to it and, and you, you bring the actual thing forward in whatever way that means, which is, I think, part of the reason why he says there's no organ for thinking, right? Because like in modern science, there's an obvious organ for thinking. It's the brain. But for Aristotle, I mean, he says, if the brain were the thing that thinks, then every thought would be brain tinted, right? It would just be, a, a, there would be some element of brain in each thought which would mean that you're not actually thinking the things, right? You're thinking the brain things or the things as they appear to the brain. But that's utterly alien to how Aristotle understands the word thinking or understanding. So you're saying, if I'm understanding you correctly, Greg, you're saying something like, in a way, this is how, how this is the way in which Aristotle is not an idealist, right? It's not that there's a screen in my mind that that portrays a picture of everything I see, but it's like, no, 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 you're interacting with the, the thing in a more, un, you're thinking the thing in a more unmediated way than the sort of fervent idealist would have it. Is that right? Yeah, and it's also why he's not a materialist. When you think something, there's no material state that corresponds to the thing thought. If I think about you, there's no material state that corresponds to me thinking you. There are all many different material states that correspond to me thinking you, but all of those material states are just byproducts of me actually understanding you and like getting that you are. And the proof of this, the evidence for this is something like um, the mind can think everything. So we either have to say it contains all things, which kind of almost seems absurd on its face, or it has the potency to receive the form of all things. And receiving this form is not strictly material, but interacts with the material. I mean, in like the most obvious way, it interacts with the material, I guess, in an Aristotelian. I mean, we would, might talk about something like brain waves or whatever, blah, blah, blah. But Aristotle would say, well, you see something beautiful and then you, you, that you desire, right? And then you're filled with the heat of desire or you see something that chills you and you're filled with the cold of your body becomes cold with fear, Right. So that is interacting with the material, but that's, but he wants to say that the thinking of it is separate from that physiological response. Yeah. So certainly perceptions bound up in material. And later on, he'll say that we can't think without an image. And it seems like we receive images for the most part from perceptions and through material. So it's not mm -hmm. like thinking is pure of material. But at the same time, thinking is in no way related to material because when you think something, exactly what you get of it is not its material. So for instance, if I'm thinking of a book, I'm actually thinking of the book as a book, like in, in its being, which is not necessarily its material. If I switch to thinking of the material of that book, now I'm bringing a new form to mind, which is the form of the material that the book is composed of. And then it's again, another form. Um, and to him, this is like logically evident because at no point does the material of the book enter me, but the complete thought that the book or the material or whatever I'm thinking is, I possess. And so for him, it's, it's not only that the mind can think everything,
but that thinking at all exists. And that's his proof mm-hmm. of his conclusion that thinking is, is immaterial because it's an utterly immaterial process. So if it is, if you agree that there is a thing that's thinking, then you have to conclude it's You've already concluded it's immaterial. All right. And, and, uh, and we can, I mean, so like the first mover or the prime mover would be the, the, an example of this. We can think things. I mean, and I'm thinking a lot about his statement right now, right? We know that we know that which is far off and better understood by that which is near and lesser understood, right? So he can, starting with material input, he can, he can think to the prime mover, even though there's no, he has no sensory access to this hypothetical, right? That he comes up with. That'd be, is, I mean, that's an, is that an example? Yeah, he does that later. I think it's like, um, is that book 11? He draws it out, or so chapter, I can't remember. But yeah, I think he does some kind of proof related to that where um, he talks about how even though it, all thinking is imagistic, there are some types of thinking that can transcend images without itself ever losing the quality of thinking an image. Sachs gives us a gloss that he, Sachs personally thinks that letters are images to Aristotle. Since you can't think without words and letters, you're, you're bound up in images, even if you're doing math, for instance. Well, yeah, let's get there. A- Alex, do you want to read the next paragraph? That mm-hmm. might be the, uh, I mean, we can see, we don't need to read every paragraph of four, but I think the next one, probably the last one are worth reading. The absence of attributes is not alike in the perceptive and thinking potencies. This is clear in its application to the sense organs and perception. For the sense is unable to perceive anything from an excessive perceptible thing, neither any sound from loud sounds, nor to see or smell anything from strong colors and odors. But when the intellect thinks something exceedingly intelligible, it is not less able to think the lesser things, but even more able, since the perceptive potency is not present without a body. But the potency to think is separate from body. And when the intellect has come to be each intelligible thing, as the knower is said to do when he is a knower in the active sense. And this happens when he is able to put his knowing to work on his own. The intellect is even then, in a sense, those objects in potency but not in the same way it was before it learned and discovered them. And it is then able to think itself. The intellect is thinking itself. Is that what Aristotle is meaning there at the end? The intellect is something exceedingly intelligible. Well, the the parallel he seems to be drawing here is that there are visible things and with regards to the visible things the perceptive capacity interacts with those and just as the perceptive capacity interacts with that which is perceptible the intellect interacts with that which is intelligible which is not and that which is intelligible is not necessarily perceptible and i think it i think it's or it's beyond it's it's like a it's perceptible plus or something yeah it, yeah it goes yeah. into some realm beyond the perceptible yeah yeah. So, so just to, to answer your question, Alex, about the, is the thing thinking itself, he's saying that the, he gives an example. So, um, so he says, when the intellect has come to be each intelligible thing, the knower is said to do when he is a knower in the active sense. 
So there's an activity to thinking. It's the, the thought becoming any form or intelligible thing, right? Like, you know, thinking a book. He's able to put his knowing to work on his own. Um, I guess that would be the things of, of his own mind. The intellect is then is even then in a sense those objects in potency, but not in the same way it was before it learned and discovered them, and is then able to think it's is then able to think, I would say those objects in potency itself, not the mind itself. But I could be wrong about the grammar of that. So I think he's saying that the intellect is has objects and potencies in two ways. The first way is anyone can learn anything they're able to learn. Right. So I could theoretically potentially think any object like the prime mover. Then there's a second way that the mind is of potency. And this is the more important way. Once I've learned it, then I can think it at any point really and become it. And that's the true potency of mind. And so it's to make something my own in a way that I could potentially be at in any way, in any moment. So this is not quite recollection in the platonic sense. It's, it's like a sort of slightly modified, less strong recollection. Right. So the platonic rec recollection is every knowledge is always a strong potency to me. I've just forgotten it and I'm going to remember it. Right. The being of everything has already been given to me. Aristotle's not saying that. Right. But he's, he's saying, saying he's saying the potency. Well, I actually would say Plato in the Mino seems to be saying, yeah, that knowledge is already in you and you need to remember it. Whereas Aristotle is saying, no, 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 the knowledge is in you, but the potential for the knowledge is in you. So the, so the mind is, is very much not a blank slate in that it has this potential. It, it, yeah, it's not a blank slate in, this, in the sense that anything that I could learn, I could learn. I don't think Aristotle thinks anyone can learn anything. But let's say I'm like a potential philosopher or something. I really could learn anything. If that's the case, then the mind would be not a blank site in there in that mind there's the potential for every thought but the but he, i think he thinks that memory or like that recollection problem is like a is like a deviant form of like the true potential of the mind which is that once something is understood there's like your you have your your own lived potential to be anything via thought and i think that's oh like, and, oh, sorry go ahead so it seems like that's aristotle's big commitment or what really, I think, marks him out more than anyone else. It seems like even Plato, or, or you know, every thinker I've ever read is basically caught up in this idea that thinking is always just off the mark by a little bit, right? So Plato's cave, right? You're, you, you're caught up in the forms, or then if you finally look at the sun, you look at the sun, but it's too bright and you're blind. Whereas with Aristotle, he's, I think he's really committed to the sense that everyone somehow actually gets what they're thinking about completely like there's no things are really really as we think them and he's radically committed to that stance which is to me not just unmodern but even like unparalleled within the mm. tradition but also like incredible he's, he's not sense. he's not tainted by the same sort of self-suspicion that even plato has yeah it's like a, a fundamental trust or a fundamental trust in the structure of mind to do what it's what it was in, in over and over in this reading now that i'm thinking about this right he says well if we assume that everything in nature has a purpose if we assume 
which interestingly he knows that's an assumption he's making but but if you make that assumption everything in nature has a purpose right has a function that is an oughtness then you really like can sort of have confidence that well, when the brain is doing what it ought to do then it's doing that in a sort of perfect way and i mean perfect in the sort of more technical sense of the word of lacking nothing sort of way that's what you're saying right greg yeah yeah absolutely um it's really i think unlike anything i've ever read in terms of he just thinks that we're we're, we're really doing it in a, in a way that i think most people talk about thinking as, as a kind of naive thing right to like imagine to walk around and really think you understand the world you're in is is almost absurd or, or laughable but it's it's really also our default attitude you know like when i go up to my front door there's i have no doubts that i understand that door completely yeah he, and that's he's, the common sense part yeah and so it's it's both common sense and you know radical and radical and unheard of right mm-hmm. well, i don't see behind the door how do i how do i have the door right and that's and that's why he has to separate perceptibility from intelligibility and because he's separated perceptibility from intelligibility you can say yeah i don't perceive everything about the object but i still completely get it and that we've talked a couple times about of about how much heidegger is indebted to aristotle and that kind of there's like the common sense you have before you start thinking and then you start thinking seriously and then you have to like find your way back to common sense through another route which is like how you know naively i would i'm sure some people would think naively i would characterize the whole thrust of heidegger's project is that he's trying to think his way back to the common sense i think he says that out loud i don't know if that's a naive comment but yeah but i think for aristotle because of where he's situated in the tradition the doubt or that kind of self-doubt that permeates our world because of something like science is not as present but then again, his world is permeated by kinds of doubts that we now find absurd, like, you know, demons in the woods and stuff. And so he has this really strange position or like unique position where he doesn't care about atoms in a way that he can look at something and just ignore its atomic properties and say, I get it. Mm-hmm. Whereas a, a scientist, you know, would refuse to say they understand an object until they have x information and even then there's sub objects of which we have no understanding and so it's not really there for us should we keep reading i was just looking ahead i actually think we can just read straight through four five six in a reasonable amount of time i think the next paragraph i'm looking at doesn't strike me that there's tons important there but i'll see what you guys think okay so we're at 429 b10 now since a magnitude is different from being a magnitude and water is different from being water And so too in many other cases, though not in all, since in some cases the two are the same, being flesh is distinguished either by a different potency from the one that distinguishes flesh or by the same one in a different relation. Being flesh is distinguished either by a different potency from the one that distinguishes flesh. So so he's saying having a body is distinguished either by a different potency from the from the intellect the thing that distinguishes flesh or by the same one in a different relation for flesh is not present without material but like a snub nose it is this in that so it is by perceptive potency that one distinguishes hot and cold and the other things of the flesh is a certain ratio 
but is by a different potency that one distinguishes the being flesh, either separate from the first, that is having a body, having a body, or else without ha or without the two, the two there would be intellect and body, having the relation a bent line has to itself straightened out. Among the things that have being in abstraction, straight is in its way just like snubness, since it is combined with continuity. But what it is for it to be, if being straight is different from what is straight, is something else. Let it be two-ness. Therefore, one distinguishes it by a different potency or by one in a different relation. So in general, in whatever way things are separate from their material, so in general, in whatever way things are separate from their material, so too are the potencies that have to do with the intellect separate from one another. I said there wasn't much in this paragraph because I didn't mark it, but rereading it, I just didn't understand it. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know if we want to spend a long time unpacking it, but I'm just, it, it, it uh, is dense even for Aristotle. Yeah, so, so it seems like with magnitude and water. So for, let's, yeah, I think we should just do it one more time from the beginning. This is, Let me read before we can I just read Sachs' gloss on this whole paragraph? Sure. And then we can start over. So he says, This rich and difficult paragraph implies that intellect pervades all human experience. What Aristotle has repeatedly called incidental perception, the recognition that this pale white shape is the son of Diarez or Cleon, probably students in front of him, seems to be the same act as distinguishing flesh or water. Thus, the thing that we perceive, thus the things that we perceive are already organized in accordance with something intelligible. And one of the things the intellect thinks is the perceptible thing in its wholeness, the same perceptible form that acts incidentally on the various sense organs, acts directly on the intellect, but it is not the only sort of form that the intellect takes on. So this, this actually kind of, before we read, I mean, this kind of goes back to my question of like, what is the meta sense that sort of coordinates all the, right? If we talk about my experience of Greg, there's there's sound i hear your voice right there's potentially touch if we were in the same room there's potentially smell there's sight right but all of those things right the intellect sort of none of those things right the the touch of greg the smell of greg the sound of greg etc is greg in its wholeness but my senses take in all those things and my intellect puts together the idea of the being of greg that is Greg in his Gregness, right? The essence of Greg, the being of Greg, however we want to say it. That's kind of, that's my working hypothesis for what he's getting at here. I think it's completely right. Because it, it's it's finding, it, intellect is finding the being, right? Finding a being before you. So like an animal can't do that. It can't, at least as far as Aristotle seems to be concerned. An animal can only react with pleasure and with pain but it doesn't know what it's the being before it in the same way right it can say like oh this this is going to be good or this is going to be bad uh, and it will act accordingly right so if a dog quote loves you it's not because it loves you it's because it loves the pleasure that it encounters as it approaches you again and again and again right it becomes um, like skinner skinnerism bf skinner yeah totally conditioning yeah, extremely yeah. reductive view of animals in that way whereas something with true intellect can take up another thing as it actually is right a dog can't ever 
like you for you. It only likes you because it feels good to be touched. It feels good to eat. It feels good to feel safe. Um, it feels good to be warm, all those stuff, but it can't know you as you, right? It can only know you as, as the good. And so in that way, an animal's world is completely undifferentiated. Whereas human beings have this, this finding a being. So I think that's what he was saying in that first sentence. Since a magnitude, a magnitude, that's any magnitude, is different from being a magnitude. And water is different from being water. And so too in many other cases, they're not in all. Since in some cases, the two are the same. I don't know which ones the two can are I, the same. Can I pause yeah. you for a sec? I'm thinking about this. A magnitude is different from being a magnitude. For some reason, I'm now thinking about the sublime, right? And the whole romantic idea that if I see a giant mountain, right, I can experience the sublime. And in some way, I'm, I'm in that moment, I think, engaging with the being of magnitude, which like a dog wouldn't do. A dog, like when I recognize and reflect on and think about the bigness of the, the cosmos, a mountain or whatever, um, which again, the sublime, experiencing the sublime is one way that people have talked about that. I am, I am thinking about the being of the magnitude in some qualitatively different way than magnitude itself is a, just a descriptor of bigness. But when I'm intellecting that bigness, that's a different thing entirely. Yeah, I think another way to talk about it is this is very based on my reading of Aristotle from other stuff. But I think he thinks of math as very abstract and unreal, almost unimportant in some ways. Magnitude in itself doesn't amount to much. It's like if I say, you know, if I think of five feet abstract, like totally abstractly, it literally can't mean anything. But, but somehow there's a way that I put, I can find a being and I can find that being to be five feet. Then that gains significance. But the magnitude, it, sensing five feet itself is almost like an act of perception. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't key up to the world as it actually is. Same thing with water, right? Wa like, like water in itself doesn't matter, but that there is water there or that thing is, is of water and I can drink it is enormously important. So then he goes to being flesh is distinguish either a different potency from the one that distinguishes flesh or by the same in a different relation. So I think he's saying there, this thing is flesh. So flesh is either sensible directly, right? Mm. It's hot, cold, you know, they're like, it'll, like there's the heat and it'll bounce off the skin and it'll permeate to the sublayer skin that will trigger the material response that I'll register as hot or cold. Maybe that's how flesh works, right? Or alternatively, there's a new faculty and this faculty has the ability to distinguish things as beings as opposed to differences. So mm -hmm. the sensory world distinguishes differences, but Hot, it doesn't cold, dry wet. Yeah. So on and, so forth. and all those differences amount to pleasure or pain, but there's a new kind of difference that can like take up a difference and leave it as a difference without judging it to be pleasurable or painful. This being is flesh, not like this being is flesh and I'm going to eat it mm -hmm. or this being is flesh and it's going to kill me. When, I think that's right. And I also think thinking about it as a whole is right in the sense of, so if your example with Aristotle's understanding of what a pet is, right? The dog loves you, right? Because you provide warmth and food and 
comforting touch and safety and all of that but the dog doesn't even necessarily do the op the higher operation where it says all of these things are coming from the same being and that being is a unity and that being is my master or something right it's like the dog is like in all of these instances of safety nutritive uh provide for provision of nutrition and so on and so forth right the dog in a very like sort of skinner way just knows like either i go towards that thing or away from that thing because i've learned that that thing either i desire that thing because that thing has provided well for me or i flee that thing because that thing is a danger and those those all of those experiences are not necessarily coordinated in some higher way yeah absolutely so then, then he says this line for flesh is not present without material, but like a snub nose, it is this and that. And I think there he's now starting to respond to a third camp. So you might have like the pure sensorial materialists, even the forms are given to us in senses. You have Aristotle's stance, the types are given to us in senses, but the beings are given to us in intellect. And then you have something, the third stance that I think he's outright rejecting, which is something like the Platonists. Animals live the way materialists think of the world. Materialists are right. It just doesn't describe humans. It describes animals at large. Whereas an idealist is actually dead wrong about everything, a platonic idealist. So the platonic idealist thinks that there are these forms that arrive without matter, that somehow the mind knows without matter. And... Aristotle saying you, that doesn't happen. You don't get the form without some kind of material interaction. And that's so, the whole school of Athens painting, right? Right. And, and I think this is where he really puts himself forward. It's the being of something is, is going to be so tied up. Like, like because he thinks you can get the being, you don't have these forms that are separate cognitive things apart from the world. The forms are, are, are taken up with the material in mind. And what was what, what all he means by form is attributing to a difference, a being that holds that difference together. Um, and then once you start to see the beings that hold these differences together, you can start abstracting from them. So for instance, I noticed that, you know, with my touch, mm-hmm. different beings have, there, there are different beings with my touch. So I have, I have both sense of perception of, of bumping into a hard and soft, right? So I've got hard and soft everywhere. And then on the second level, I noticed that there's a hard being over there. There's a soft being over there. There's a hard being over there, soft, hard, soft, hard, soft, whatever, all these holes. And then from that, I abstract this hard being begins here and there. That's a magnitude. Every being I've met so far has a magnitude. There is such a thing as magnitude itself. And some people go so far as to say magnitude is a being which is, I don't think what Aristotle is doing at all, but that is to be what the platonic idealists do to say something like there's a, there's a third type of being. So there's beings, there's, you know, differences. And then there are these forms that exist that give all the differences in material, their, their real difference. Whereas Aristotle's like, no, it's, there's all these beings out there and I just read off them and their being, and then I can't abstract that, but I'm not really doing anything real there. Right. So the forms don't have to exist in the heavens as they do for Plato, or at least in the conventional reading, but rather, well, and, and Aristotle would say, right, form and matter are, uh, I mean, it's hy- hylomorphism is the word for it, right? That form and matter are 
are inseparable except as a sort of hypothetical and intellectual hypothetical that is not is not I don't think for Aristotle it's not a waste of time but it's not it is a intellectual operation that allows us to think but that doesn't mean that the forms are real outside of the intellectual realm the intellect formulates the forms based on its engagement with the material and so the the form is ultimately an intellectual project which is and I guess all of this, what I'm trying to get at is I understand what you mean, Greg, when you say that they're not real. And I even think that's right. But if Aristotle were to say, well, they're not real, he doesn't mean they're not real in the same way that the materialists say that they're not real. In the sense that not real implies not valid. No, they're actually valid and really important and worthwhile. And an important part of being human is engaging in this intellectual process of identifying the forms. Um, and they have a certain sort of reality, though it's not as strong as Plato's and it's not as insignificant as I think sort of the strict materialist line would have it. Right. Well, because the, the forms are real because the beings are real and we just don't know that the beings are without the, the forms. Well, and, yeah. And it's also important that the intellect, right, when so when I identify the form of human or of chair or whatever, right. The intellect is doing what it is, is fulfilling its telos, right? And the intellect in, in everything in nature, and I think you would include the intellect in that in some sense, everything in nature, right, has a purpose and it's supposed to fulfill that, which is going back to what we talked about earlier. So it's not like, oh, we're just inventing these things because we can. It's like, no, 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 no. When the intellect formulates the form of something, it's doing what it's supposed to do. And, and is therefore sort of participating in the harmonious cosmic whole in some way. I'm also thinking about, right, Aquinas picking this up and, and the sort of doctrine of analogy, which is not totally far off from what we've been talking about. We know, we know about, again, you know, Aristotle does not have the same idea of a deity as Aquinas has, but, but Aquinas would say, right, if, well, if we want to know about God's justice, right, we start by looking at, at justice in the world and, or his his magnificence or something right we start by looking at material examples of magnificence in the world and by that we can know something of of his extra gods that is extrasensory magnificence right so starting from that which is far off and less well known we can know that which is far off but more knowable which i, I again i just think is when i wrote that paper about Cecil milosh's poem uh to raja rao i really thought a lot about the brilliance of that of Aristotle's statement that we can start by we can start from that which is close off and not as well known to know that which is farther off, which is yeah I don't know I just think it's really uh, a really deep profound interesting idea. I agree, I agree. Is it possible to say or or is it correct that when we when we craft this form of a an object that we perceive multiple times or whatever that that's that's how knowledge is made that the knowledge of an object is its form kind of like how we're talking about that process right once we think about an animal a cat or a dog there's that uh that form is inherent in our intellect the uh form of that animal and that's the knowledge of it 
I think it's more like the knowledge is its being. So that that animal is is the knowledge of it. And that we can know, we can know its being completely. And after we know that it has a being, then we could continue and say, yes, one of the things that belongs to its beings is the form of being black or whatever, but that's an abstraction. Or okay. not, not being black is an abstraction, but, but once you start to read off blackness, now you're abstracting. You're not really looking at the thing that you previously were. So you're not doing knowledge in the same way anymore. Right. So there's there's like a, the cat and all the things that, that make it such is that is that its being or and then then you can think about the different uh, attributes that it has and that those are those are different concepts related to the object itself yeah so flesh we can intellectually imagine as separate from a cat right mm -hmm. we know we, lots of things have flesh not just cats but not, knowledge doesn't consist in knowing that there is flesh. Knowledge consists in knowing that that being is a being flesh. Because there's no such thing as flesh minus a being. Like it doesn't exist at all. It's an utterly useless idea. Mm -hmm. And so, so all knowledge is categorically of that being has this. Yeah, but it starts with perception, right? So I, at the beginning, I perceive flesh. And then I have knowledge of the form of flesh and then I can apply that to new, new no, things. No, I don't think no. that's how it works. I think you perceive flesh separately. No, sorry, you don't perceive flesh. You perceive, you know, a blur in the distance, whatever. You perceive <laughs> some sight sounds, you perceive some hearing sounds. Like I saw a rabbit crossing my window, right? So how do I go from seeing that perception, a brown thing, a moving thing, um, I guess, yeah, you can perceive motion. Yeah, sort of. Yeah, it's it's not still. Yeah, you can perceive motion because there's a change in sight. Yeah, well, all perception is motion. So um, I saw a brown thing. I saw a, a thing moving with respect to place. And I saw it moving against gravity. So I saw doing all those things. So I said, well, that's clearly a being because it's mm -hmm. moving in its wholeness. That's intelligence. Already, I'm a million steps above every animal in the animal kingdom. No other creature in the world can identify that rabbit as a being, as a, as a wholeness unto itself. Then I can, and that's, that is the active intellect. And that is far more important than any other active intellect that I can immediately say that is whatever mm -hmm. that was, it was, and I really got it. So it's a being after it's a being, then I can do what I'll call for the sake of it, intellectual exercises. Oh, it's moving against gravity, but it's not red. So it's not fire. It's visible, so it's not air. It's brown, so, but it was moving against gravity, so it's not earth. You know, it must be some kind of soul and soul being. So then I have, uh, you know, it's a being in soul. It's an animal, right? It was also moving on its own. It wasn't a plant. That's ba not basically all those operations that you're describing are the operations of intellect. Yeah, but they're always those ones are the after the fact ones. Those are the ones that are much much less mm. important. And from those, then I can say, well, I've seen other things that are locomotive. That's what an animal is minus the being of an animal. And so the forms are always super late on the scene in that way. First, there's the being. 
and it's and we have like somehow like we like intellect is just having that being and and we can say regarding that being it's a being flesh and just we can distinguish it unlimitedly with respect to whatever being we want but we have the being but, but isn't but isn't intellect always after the fact in a sense that like because in what you just described this your sort of narrative of experiencing the rabbit right um there's a sort of switch back and forth between perception and intellection right with regards to that thing and you you always start with the perception before you can before you can grasp it's being intellectually and maybe the movement is super quick right maybe it's almost instantaneous so i think that's the debate is mm -hmm. because in some ways the the intellect has to inform the perception because i don't react to the world in the same way a dog does and so I'm able to instantly with intellect choose what is pleasurable and is not, which informs what I constitute as a whole rather than what the dog does. Well, and, and that's the sense in which we're a knower, right? We're dynamic in our past currently activated knowledge informs how we take up the world in the here and now. But it's also the case that, I mean, there's, two senses of intellect, right? There's the thing you're talking about where I instantly, um, I meet somebody and I instantly know without having to reflect at all that, oh, this is a person and this person is a unity and, uh, you know, a discrete being in the world or whatever. But then there's also like, oh, I saw that blur. What was that? And then I think about it a little bit and I go, oh, it must've been a rabbit because this, that, and the other. Right. But when you see a blur, you always know it's a being. So I think like that's the, like Mm -hmm. a dog, if for instance, let's say a dog sees a crowd of humans running at it. A dog in some ways probably can't identify that as a unity. And then well, it, it can identify it as something to fear. Yeah. And, the, and can, yeah. In that way, it's a unity, but, it, but not a unity in itself, right? It's a unity to, towards the dog. Uh, and so in that way, they literally can't perceive the same things a human can, because what constitutes the wholeness of perception would be different for the human watching a mob running at it than a dog watching a mob running at it. And I think, so that's the point kind of Sachs makes in the footnotes that like he thinks that perceptible things take on forms that the intellect gives them, right? Like I choose what doesn't constitute and what does constitute the being. And I talk about that. Whereas imagine a dog could talk, it would talk about things that don't matter all the time. Because those would be simultaneous to its fear, and fear is all it knows, or love, you know, conversely. So if it were to describe a situation which would afraid, it would just narrate everything because it was afraid. Like it can't identify the wholeness of its fear in the same way that we can. So that I think that's Sax's point. I don't see Aristotle making that totally clearly, but if if the being of a thing is somehow tied to a wholeness of its perception that might mean that we can perceive things that animals can't because of our intelligence, mm-hmm. even if the way that they're perceived is, is not an, a sixth sense or something. Let's, let's keep reading. But one might find it an impasse if the intellect is simple and without attributes and has nothing in common with anything. And as Anaxagoras says, how it could think. If thinking is a way of being acted upon, it seems to be by virtue of something common that is present in both that one thing that acts, which would in this case would be the intelligible thing, and another is acted upon, which in this case would be the intellect. One also, and also whether the intellect is itself an intelligible thing, 
For either there would be an intellect in everything else, if it is not by virtue of something else that it is itself intelligible, but what is intelligible is something one in kind, or else there would be something mixed in it, which makes it intelligible like other things. As for things being acted upon in virtue of something common, the distinction was made earlier that the intellect is in a certain way, the intelligible things in potency, but is actively none of them before it thinks them. It is in potency in the same way a tablet is when nothing written is present in it actively. This is exactly what happens with the intellect. And it is itself intelligible, it the intellect is itself intelligible in the same way its intelligible objects are. For in the, same, for in the case of things without material, what thinks and what is thought are the same thing. For contemplative knowing and what is known in that way are the same thing. Then one must consider the reason why this sort of thinking is not always happening. But among things having material, each of them is potentially something intelligible, so that there is no intellect present in them, since intellect is a potency to be such things without their material, but there is present in them something intelligible. So he makes a distinction here, right? When I think the number four, my thought and the, and the number four are itself the same thing because four does not strictly speaking exist in the world. So four is, yeah, four in some way is both intelligible and, and intellect in some way. But when I think a rock, the rock is material. My intellection of rock is, is non-material. So they're not the same thing. So it's not necessarily that, it's not that the rock itself is has intellect, but rather that the form of the rock in my intellect is an intellectual thing. Does that basically seem, I'm just glossing, does that basically seem to, seem to be the point here? Except, yeah, the thing I add to that is in the rock, there really is something that gives it over to be intelligible, mm -hmm. right? Like the rock has to have two things. There's the part of it that's perceptible, which is that it's struck by light, right? And reflects light back. Okay, so that's why it's perceptible. But that, and that in itself, it is a being and therefore can be taken as one. Well, it has being. It doesn't have intellect, but it is intelligible in some way. Yeah, and, and so it has being as intelligible being. And that's in itself. It's not something we project on it. Yeah. It has the it has the it has the potency, it has the potential to be intellected if an intellect is present to intellect it. <laughs> Bingo. Um, I just want to make a comment here, right here. He uses the metaphor of the, the tabula rasa, right? The intellect is in potency in the same way a tablet is when nothing written is present and inactively. But I want to comment. I don't think he's not using tabula rasa in the same way that it's sort of understood today because the, the Aristotelian intellect had very definitely has a structure and very definitely has capacity um, in a much stronger way, I think even than like Kant or something, like much stronger than just the categories. Yeah, I, th I think that's exactly right. I mean, so Aristotle's st structure of the mind is the structure of the world. In, in potency. In potency, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I could fail to think the world, but, but theoretically my mind, since it is capable of thinking everything, it's, it's, you know, the shape of the mind is the same shape as the universe. 
Right. One, if you take the sort of contemporary, at least the popular understanding of tabula rasa, you kind of pretty quickly get to the 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 idea that well, all our knowledge is just a social construct, and that's not what Aristotle's saying at all. He's saying the exact opposite. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Right? It's, it's real. Saying, yeah, it's real, and all of those potencies are in your mind. Whether you think them or not is another question. And then also that the inverse that the the biologists like. Um, I don't know, you know, this biological psychologist, those linguists, right? That there are these fundamental structures in the mind or the mind is bound to think linguistically and is therefore limited according to the, the words it can speak. He's also throwing it out. And that's why it's a blank slate is it can think the being of anything in the world. Yeah, it can think, think the being without being bound to the symbols, right? The lettering, that's what, what you're saying, Greg. You think the yeah. thing in its being, you don't think the, you know, C-A-T in the case of a cat. Right. You, you don't think of it that way linguistically for Aristotle. I also thought the way that you were discussing it, Greg, about the, the universe being in the mind, in potency, it reminded me of one of Schopenhauer's formulations of sort of like how representation works and he talks about the subject being a conditional supporter of the universe that's sort of like as long as i exist the universe exists for me it's not exactly the same as aristotle but the way you talked about the ability of the intellect to think the universe in potency it reminded me of it there's a similarity there somewhere yeah, it's, it's kind of like a, a weird mirror image because for Aristotle, there's no representation at all. What we still haven't gotten to his account of falsehood yet, which I kind of want to get to in memory. That he doesn't have representation in that way. Like, you know, it, it's not their subject and then object and the subject recreates the object for the subject or the subject objectifies a being. So, yeah, but but it is that sense of like the world needs the subject in the sense that in the world everywhere, it has something for the subject. Should we read chapter five? I'm watching the clock. Well, let's read chapter five. Let's try not to get too caught up in it so then we can think about six, which is where the falsehood comes up. But since in all nature, one thing is the material for each kind, this is what is in potency, all the particular things of that kind but it is something else that is the causal and productive thing by which all of them are formed. As is the case with an art in relation to its material, it is necessary in the soul too that these distinct aspects be present. The one sort is intellect by becoming all things, the other sort by forming all things in the way an active condition such as light does. For in a certain way, light too makes the colors that are in potency be at work as colors. This sort of intellect is separate as well as being without attributes and unmixed, since it is by its thinghood of being at work. For what acts is always distinguished in stature above what is acted upon, as a governing source is above the material it works on. Knowledge in its being at work is the same as the thing it knows. And while knowledge and potency comes first in time in any one knower, in the whole of things it does not take precedence even in time. This does not mean that at one time it thinks, but another time it does not think. But when separated, it is just exactly what it is. And this alone is deathless and everlasting. That we have no memory because this sort of intellect is not acted upon. 
Well, the sort that is acted upon is destructible and without this, nothing thinks. So there's thinking, there's capital T thinking, which pre-exists everything. And then there is thinking, small t or something, right? Intellect precedes all of my acts of intellection. So there's, there's something that's intelligible everywhere about the world. And I go along and pick up the scraps that's left behind of the thing that's already everywhere. The fact that I can think everything immediately gives me the idea that there isn't everything that is. Therefore, you know, there's something immortal about being. Right. Well, like uh, what's, I mean, in metaphysics, he talks about the, the hoopostasis, that which is under everything. Um, and in, in some ways, right, that's intelligibility. The condition of intelligibility precedes my intellection. And the condition of intelligibility is not, is not merely confined to my individual intellect, right? But it's the sort of precondition for intellection at all, right? And so in some ways, right, yes, the form of the cat or the dog or whatever is a product of my intellect. But the fact that I could, but the fact that I can intellect at all is like almost like a spiritual condition substrate underneath everything. That is like, if there is a real form, it's the form of intelligibility in general, which is the, which creates the space in which my intellect can formulate the form of cat. Yeah, another way to put it is, all beings are the same in one way. They are beings. There is no being that's not a being. And that's actually not simply a tautology. It's a tautology in the sense it's unprovable that there's not a being that's, well, you know what I mean by that. Like, I, I can't prove to you that everything, that there aren't things that can't be intellected. But you can either act as if that's true or not. And while acting, if it's true that everything is intelligible, it immediately gives you the conclusion that there's something everywhere giving it that intelligibility because you sure aren't. Mm -hmm. Right? If I put a bullet in your head, there is no more intelligibility for you. Right. When this is, I mean, I'm sort of thinking about this idea of light, right? Um, And in John 1, right? In the beginning was the Logos. The Logos was with God and the Logos was God. And, and skipping a couple of verses, he was the, the light of men, right? The light that gives men understanding is the pre-existing logos. Of course, John is not thinking of the same thing as Aristotle, but they're in a similar way, they're thinking about the precondition of intelligibility, which pre-exists any individual knower. Yeah, I think he was thinking about Aristotle in one way in that he's responding directly in Greek yeah, he's and responding time to time and situation where the philosophical of tradition yeah, yeah. have presented the primary metaphor of being as light, which was Aristotle and Plato. Right. The John's revolution is that this isn't a principle, but a person. If we talk about Aristotle's sort of interaction between material and idealism, right? The in in some way he's he's not quite saying it here, but he's saying that like yeah, somehow soul is soul is everywhere in that intelligibility is everywhere or something. I don't know. Yeah, so soul is very potential. 
And I think mm -hmm. that's why it's not that soul is everywhere, but it's that soul could be anywhere in the sense that my soul is not limited to what I am in the sense that my soul takes on everything that's not me. So therefore there's a, a connection I have immediately to everything. And I'm not cut off from the world in any way, meaningful way. What so, if we, right, if we talk about Aristotle's, sorry, go ahead and finish, Greg. It was just to say that that unity gives me a sense of a bigger unity than me. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of this, uh, I mentioned it a couple minutes ago, but I think it's worth saying again, a lot of this goes back to this, the Aristotle's idea that like his, his teleological faith or conviction, right? And essentially what he's saying here is, right, the soul fits the world like a hand fits a glove. I can have faith in my, I can trust my intellectual activity, not that I never make mistakes, right, which we'll get to in a minute, but I can basically trust my intellectual activity because there's a meeting of, of uh, a key in the hole, right? Or the hand in the glove, right? The intellect is meeting a world that's designed to be intellected. That's designed, that not designed. I don't even want to use that language. It's too freighted. But my soul is in a cosmos that is, that by its nature is intelligible. Which again, like once you lose that, you sort of get modern philosophy. You get Hume and Descartes and all of that. Once you sort of give up that premise. Yeah, I mean, his, his basic premise is the universe is not a, a waking nightmare, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. like it, it really is profoundly different than your dream state. And it's guided, and that difference is an intelligibility that does not belong to you. So everyone ought to recognize that and act accordingly. Hmm. And if you don't act accordingly, you belong to a waking nightmare. Mm -hmm. It doesn't belong to you, but it is accessible to you. Sorry, are you talking about the, the, the fundamental intelligibility? Yeah. It belongs to you in the sense, not that you own, not the possessive belonging, but the belonging yeah. isn't the, your teleology is that belonging. Yeah, that's right. Should we move into six? Uh, the thinking of indivisible things is one of those acts in which falsehood is not possible. And where there is falsehood as well as truth, there is already some kind of compounding of intelligible things as though they were one. Just as Empedocles says, upon the earth, four heads of many kinds sprouted up without necks, and then were put together by friendship, so too are these separate intelligible things put together, such as incommensurability in the diagonal, and if the thinking of the things that have been or are going to be, then one puts them together while additionally thinking the time. For falsehood is always in the act of putting things together. For even in denying that white is white, one puts together not white with white, or it is also possible to describe all these as acts of dividing. At any rate, not only is it possible for it to be true or false that Cleon is pale skinned, but also that he was or will be pale. What, make, what makes each thing be one is the intellect. So animals also don't make errors right? Because they're not putting things together. So concrete, so right, if I'm thinking black, I can't be mistaken about the form of black, right? But if I say, well, Greg's car is black, right? I could be mistaken about that because I'm compounding a being with a color and I might be misremembering or I might have not seen it because of there wasn't enough light or whatever. Right. So 
you always receive beings truthfully and you always receive the forms truthfully, but you're capable of rearranging the forms with respect to beings via something like imagination, but also intellectual failure. So the problem with the Greg's car is black one. It is the example he gives of like identifying the students white, but I feel like that's going to be tied up. It's, it's confusingly tied up with imagination. Like a, a, a true intellectual error. Yeah. I mean, like identifying something as black or. Well, could it be something like, because it, yeah, it's too tied up with perception too. I mean, could it be something also like Papa Alex, Alexander the Great is a just ruler, right? Yeah, so it's I've, better. Com I've compounded Alexander with just, and that may or may not be right, but I conceivably could be mistaken about that. And I've taken the form of justice in the form of Alexander and said that they're one. My intellect has said that they're one, but it may actually be the case that he's an unjust ruler. Well, it's more like you're taking the form of justice and being of Alexander and combining them. Because you're, you're not wrong that Alexander is. And in that way, you, you kind of can't be wrong. I mean, you could be wrong in the sense that like you think something is in the room and there's not. But you can't be wrong about that the room is mm -hmm. or something like that, right? So, so, so every error is not in a, yeah, you literally, it, the simple assertion cannot be wrong, but it's all combining. So when I say stupid things like there are unicorns, the problem isn't that I've, I, I, you know, let's say, or like I see Bigfoot in the woods, right? I've taken a being and given it something that wasn't, wasn't what it is. But what, what if I say though, so let's say that yesterday alexander died in battle and i didn't know it and i say alexander is haven't i compounded the i uh, the being of alexander with being with existence or something and made an error there yeah but that's you're, you're to aristotle you're you're taking the error of attributing the existence to a time the, the combination is there the existence plus time so you're not wrong in the sense of there was a being regarding right. Alexander. So the, so, so the way to fix that would be Alexander was. And so the, the temporal right. dimension is changing, yeah. not the being. Here's a weirder one. So some people don't think that the battle that Hannibal lost the, to the Romans at, at um, uh, what's it, I can't Car remember. Carthage or? Yeah, so it was right outside of Carthage. It was uh -huh. this big battle and it ended the war. Some people don't think the battle existed at all. Yeah. Right. So what kind of error is that? Well, it's properly, it should be an error of combination of different beings into a new order that didn't never existed. Right. It's a, so it's a wholeness of this battle, um, but maybe the battle never happened. Right. Is in no way ever existed. It's just purely Roman propaganda that was made up after the fact, or like the Jewish conspiracy to overthrow Germany. Right. In some ways, that would be a being if it were able to, if it were, but it's not a being. So what, what happened in that error? All these other beings were aggregated improperly into an imaginary being, right? They went too quickly from the thing that's close and known to the thing that's far and not known. What? Yeah, I see what you're saying, Greg. What I don't like about either of those examples is that they both involve a liar, right? The falsehood was, I believe, some form of a lie because the witness, the supposed witness to the event deceived me. 
That's fair. Um, um, do you see? So I see what you're saying, and I, I it actually here's here, sense, here's but... it. Um, the the Big Bang happened. So there, there's no, you know, deliberation of truth. Or, no one's sowing the seeds of discontent. Hopefully, they're really just trying to do their best, and they're reasoning to a possible conclusion that's true or false. Mm-hmm. That the Big Bang happened. Maybe it didn't. Maybe it did. There's probably not enough evidence to determine definitively that it did happen in X way, right? Um, here's here's what I don't can I tell you what I don't like about that example. It depends on empirical scientific methods rather than pure intellect intellection, right? Because the question about the Big Bang is, well, do I trust that these tools are accurate? Do I trust that you know the carbon dating of such and such is is accurate? And that seems to me too empirical for what we're thinking about here. All right, third third thing. Someone reasons, oh, keep trying these. Someone reasons that, uh, no, this is good. This is a good exercise. Someone reasons to a metaphysical error such that, for instance, um, they have no soul. Someone concludes that they have no soul. So Aristotle would look at someone who says something like that as someone who can't take, it's not that they, they don't notice themselves, right? They still take themselves to be one being. But what they take is the name of soul and all of the combinations that have been previously said and argued for as, as they, they fail to notice the unity of what they already, already pay attention to. It's, a, it's harder to explain, but it, is, it really like the, all, those, all those intellectual errors are, as you've been hounding Elijah, failing to go to something far from something close via combination, not noticing a simple being as a simple being as a being i did think about uh semblance as a possibility of the combining of two things you know how we perceive the the sun it appears to change position but in actuality we've determined that that we move around the sun so to conclude the first thing that that the sun moves is the falsehood because we're mm-hmm. putting together this object that we see and motion incorrectly does that sort of fit aristotle's uh model here but the perception is not wrong the perception that the sun is moving across the sky is not wrong mm-hmm. right perceptions are never wrong the perception right. that the pencil is broken in the cup of water is not wrong, right? I, I'm perceiving what I'm perceiving. And that perception is true insofar as it's perception. Yeah, the falsehood well, so if... is the act of putting things, falsehood is always in an act of putting things together. That's why I was saying mm-hmm. the sun and motion would be like the two things put together Yeah, that engenders the falsehood. Right. So we would have to say something like, well, the perception that the sun is moving across the sky is true, but the intellectual claim that the sun is moving around the earth is false. Because an animal, too, would perceive the sun, you know, moving east to west or whatever. And that is true insofar as perceptions cannot be false, but it's false insofar as I then make a claim that there's this pattern to the world where the well, what's so difficult about this? We remember reading it in the human condition where Arendt talks about the invention of the telescope as the most important thing of the last thousand years because it revealed that 
a tool can discover truth that intellect can't. And the tool revealed to, you know, via Galileo's work, et cetera, the tool revealed to us that our senses are lying to us all day, every day. So, so that's what I'm thinking about as I hear this example. And I, I think, I don't think it's a bad one. I'm, I'm not sure what to do with it. Maybe can we simplify it and think about, so the, the pencil and the cup of water that appears to be broken, but in reality is not, right? So I'm putting together two things. I'm putting together pencil and brokenness. If I say, Greg, you're, I saw your pencil and a cup of water and it's broken, right? And he also says that speech only inheres in falsehood or falsehood only inheres in speech, right? Once you introduce speech, you introduce the possibility of falsehood. We read, we read that for last time. So what do you guys do with this? Another example is just how trivial most errors are in the sense that errors are about trivial problems because they stem from putting things the wrong way, especially things about aren't being. So if I say like, let's say I make an error about like, let's say I say five times seven is 56, something crazy like that, Mm -hmm. right? Like I said, it happens to me like five times a day because I teach fourth graders math. That's an utterly trivial error and the reason they make that error so freely is because it has nothing to do with a being it's not about a being it's it's something it's i've got these forms and i'm trying to reason on top of that um but i i never saw you know the the 56 in its being Mm -hmm. and and thought oh yes this is the whole that constitutes five times seven well that's a purely intellectual error because no perceptions involved right well, so if we think about something like, okay, so like, right, our, the d- division in the country at the moment, right? And I like this because it brings in desire and desire is not involved in your, your math example. More or less half the country would, you know, would say that Trump is something to be feared, right? So they combine Trump and danger, tyrannical or whatever. And then roughly the other half would say, no, 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 he's something to be desired and, and move towards. Right. And one of those two, I think, I don't even know though, because now I'm like bringing in a value judgment. But I think Aristotle would say, well, one of those two is wrong. One of those two combinations is wrong. Right. But it's interesting because in one second, Greg, if it isn't, if he would even say that, right, it's an error that involves an error of what is desirable. Yeah. I think that's right. It's it's basically an error about replace desirable with the good. What right, is or justice good? justice is probably a better one what is just yeah yeah because if, if that's the case then that's fine but if it's like oh this will bring me pleasure well you can't make an error in that type of thinking except in the sense of time errors right like no but you can you can make an error and, and i mean thinking about the beginning of the ethics you can make an error with regards to that right every human action is aimed towards some good but it's really clear in the ethics that some people are aiming what they believe to be the good, but it's not the good. Those are time errors, right? Like, oh, if I do this, then in the future, this will happen, right? It's not an error in the sense of I was wrong that this thing is pleasurable. Mm. It's, a, it's a wrong prediction. Yeah, because otherwise but, dogs could be wrong. If, like you can't be wrong about pleasure, right? You can only be wrong in this will successfully give me pleasure or this is or pleasure is good. Those things you can certainly be wrong about. Like maybe you put one pleasure above the good and that's an error. That's real. Um, but, dog, but well, so, so like in the example of a dog that eats chocolate that you left out, right? You left out chocolate, eats all this chocolate, gets super sick. 
it it was wrong well it believed that the thing would bring us bring it pleasure and it probably did in the moment but in the future it actually brought more pain than pleasure overall right but the, so the dog never concluded this being is pleasure it just eats the chocolate pleasure 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 no pain, good. Pain, 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 right? Like it just flips. Um, and so in that way, you yeah, that's and that's why it can't be wrong, right? So like in the same way, like if we so keep, if it started yeah. tasting the chocolate and in the let's say the chocolate had gone bad or something and it immediately tasted gross, then it would stop. And it wouldn't right. be wrong to do that. Right. It wasn't wrong that it gave it pleasure while eating, otherwise it wouldn't do it. That wouldn't make any sense for it to do it. Or like the drug addict, right? The drug addict is not wrong that doing drugs now give it pleasure, but he or she is wrong that he or she has failed to predict the is not a serious person, which actually Aristotle brought into this reading at some point, the difference between, I don't think he used exactly the language of serious person, which I'm, I'm drawing from the ethics, but he, he brought up that idea that serious and unserious people approach future pain and pleasure in different ways. Yeah, absolutely. They're more like, because it's like the drug addict thing, right? The other part of it is like, it's a real pl pain, pleasure, not even to take it, but to like get to taking it, like to, yeah, on, to, to be on the way it. to, yeah, is itself already pleasurable. Here's, um, which here's, is, yeah. I'll just read real quickly. This is what I was thinking of. And at the end of chapter nine, he's talking about, but he says, he's talking about motion. He says, but neither is it desire that governs this sort of motion since self-restrained people, even when they desire and yearn for something, do not necessarily do those things for which they have the desire, but follow the intellect, right? So, and implicitly, there are people that basically don't use their intellect and just <laughs> scarf up all the drugs or chocolate in front of them, which is very much in line with how he thinks about uh, people and the ethics. Should we keep reading in six, try to get through it? Uh, but since an undivided thing can be of two kinds, either incapable of division or actively undivided, nothing prevents one from thinking an undivided thing when one thinks it for some duration, since it is actively undivided, nor from thinking it in an undivided time, for time is divided and undivided in the same way as its duration. So since it is not possible to say what one thought in each half of time, since there are no halves when it has not been divided other than potentially. But by thinking separately during each of the halves, one also divides the time along with it. And then it is if then it is as if there were separate durations. But if one thinks in a way that is made out of the two halves, one also thinks in a time that applies to both. But what is indivisible, not in amount, but in kind, one thinks in an indivisible time and by means of something indivisible in the soul. But incidentally, and not in the way those things by means of which one thinks, and the time in which one thinks are divisible, but in the way that they are indivisible, for even in these there is something indivisible, but perhaps not separate, that makes the time and its duration one. And this is similarly in every continuous thing, a time as well as a length, a point in every division, and what is indivisible in what way, in that way, is evident in the way deprivation is. And a similar account applies to other things, such as how one recognizes what is bad or black, since one recognizes them in a way by means of their opposites. But to do this, the knower must potentially be those opposites, and they must potentially be in him. If there is any knower to which nothing is opposite, it knows itself and is a being at work and separate. 
Every act of saying something about something and likewise of denying is either true or false, but this is not so with every act of intellect. But thinking what something is in the sense of what it keeps on being in order to be at all is true and is not one thing attached to another. But in the same way that the seeing of something proper to sight is true, but seeing whether the white thing is a human being or not is not always true. The same thing holds also with the thinking the things that are without material. So I just finished chapter six there. I thought we could spend the next you know 10 minutes or so trying to unpack that. And then we're gonna, that's where we'll have to leave Aristotle <laughs> for, for now. Re, uh, listener to this podcast, we are moving on to Dante next week. So there's a big stink, there's a big focus here made on, yeah, there are some things that it's impossible to think except as a whole, and there are other things that we can divide up. Um, and if we're thinking something that is impossible to think except as a whole, we can't be make an error about it. So in a sense, he's just sort of reiterating what he began with. But something that is compound is where we're most likely to make an error, which seems like sort of obviously true, it's sort of common sense. You have mentioned a couple times, Greg, time, and it was sort of interesting to see him bring in time here. What purpose is this? He's now introduced into thinking the element of time. And the question is, what is that doing or why is that necessary? It's like, it's like one of the most common types of errors, right? That you attribute the wrong time to an event. So like health language, a combination error, right? You, you matched a set time to an incorrect event or happening. So it seems like it's... I don't know. It just seems like he's saying it's this is so weird to me because it feels like Aristotle naturally thinks the world is immensely mixed. There's very few purely simple things. So it really does seem like in some ways you can make an error about just about everything. Well, I think, um, I mean, it's interesting. The only sort of the example we've come to again and again is this sort of our thinking about historical events. Right. But I'm wondering which I think is right. But I'm wondering, I'm wondering how we might talk about, right, if we're thinking about the, okay, so let's say, let's say I'm thinking about trying to understand thinking about apples, right, and I incorrectly sort of come to the conclusion that all apples are red, right, so the combination of apple and red, which the mistake there is that some apples are red, but some are green, some are yellow, so on and so forth essentially what I've done is I've made a mistake about the combination, redness and apple, insofar as I make it absolute or universal. I've attributed redness to the form of apple. Is that sort of mistake, is time at all relevant to that sort of mistake? Because it sort of feels to me, this is what I'm trying to think about, that sort of mistake sort of feels to me like a sort of very platonic mistake about forms, right? That is sort of Time is sort of irrelevant to it. And yeah, maybe that's that, right. Okay. And Aristotle does seem to say, for instance, he says in the metaphysics, like human beings have, or like time repeats itself. Uh, it seems to think, take human beings as always existing. It certainly takes the earth as always existing. So saying, you know, were apples always red? Doesn't, it doesn't seem to be a question. 
just in the sense that apples have always existed. So they if they're red now, they'll always be red and vice versa. I guess maybe another point is nature is a very static thing with respect to time and any kind of intellectual conclusion about it. it would then push thinking errors with respect to time back into historical events again, because that's the domain where something can actually change. Yeah. It seems to me the important thing of this chapter is the idea that so you have the soul can make error with regards to compound things, but it can't make error with regards to indivisible things. And I kind of think there's some suggestion here that the fact that the soul, let's say, the fact that the soul seems so adequately equipped to intellect indivisible things suggests that the soul itself, maybe the most important part of the soul itself is indivisible. He says that right. It's simple because uh, yeah. if, it, if it weren't, if it were complex, if it were mixed, we wouldn't be able to think everything. You're just constantly stuck thinking brain with whatever. No, I get that. And I'm just thinking of this as another proof of the indivisibility of the soul, the simple simplicity of the soul. And the simplicity of the soul, I think, is connected to its deathlessness in some way. That said, the only deathless thing about soul is reason. So it's really more like the simplicity of reason mm -hmm. because your nutritive capacity is fully capable of dying. Right. Your motive capacity is fully capable of dying. Your sensorial capacity is fully, I can take away all your senses forever. You can no longer see here. You know, when we die, there will be no hearing, there will be no seeing, there will be no. Well, that the duration of time thing is that, right, reason, right, can think something indivisible for an eternal amount of time because right in its simplicity it's not subject to change in some way that a compound thing perhaps is i might be wrong i'm sort of trying out some hypotheses here a point in every division and what is indivisible in any way is evident in the way a deprivation is right so uh, i don't know I'm, I'm sort of out of gas here I thought the, the introduction of deprivation was interesting. And I mean, the, well, it's interesting. So another interesting thing is that the potency of the soul, I think one thing Aristotle is saying here is that you have to have an understanding of the whole to understand that something's missing, right? If I see a human without an arm, it's because the potency for knowing the form of the human in my intellect is for knowing the the full human right and so as soon as i notice the deprivation of an arm let's say then there's some sense that the i think that the the wholeness of a thing has some sort of priority to any deprived version of it the a knowledge of the form of a wholeness of a thing right is a necessary condition for identifying a deprivation which in one hand is like a really simple obvious statement but i but i think there's something profound there about the way that the entire cosmos in its wholeness is imbricated with the soul, which allows us to go around and identify places where it's lacking. For sure. And I think that's why uh, the, it's like the being thing versus the concept thing. So if I could only work with concepts, I wouldn't have a way of saying that person should have 
an arm there because there'd be no reason to think that, well, it would just be like a category or, oh, I was wrong when I thought all humans had arms. So there's something about the world having proper but not necessary states that gives us the idea of there's a thing that these concepts belong to. And those concepts are therefore thought late. The thing comes first. I was, ta- I was talking to somebody today and we were talking about virtue ethics and I was saying the real scandal of virtue ethics um, is the idea that there's one right way to be human. There's a normative way to be human. And most people fall short of that most of the time, but that doesn't, the fact that there are many, 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 many exemplars of people that are not, and again, we can, I'm not even trying to define what is that ideal human, right? What is the ideal oughtness of the human? I'm not even going there, but just the fact that such a standard exists, even if you can't find a single person or very few people that actually embody it, it doesn't unvalidate, doesn't discredit the, the telos, right? The, te- the teleological, the model. And that's, that is something that modern thinking and sort of modern uh, habits of thought just can't abide, really. That said, I feel like Aristotle would have to say there are people who are virtuous in order to claim virtue exists because he's so bound up in. That's, that's, okay, yeah. I'll, grant, I'll grant that, but you would, definitely, you would definitely grant me that most people are not. Oh, for sure. The many are completely yeah. lacking in virtue. Yeah. And that's just, you know. First of all, to say that there's one way and to say that most people are not doing it is just sort of a, a, an offense to the modern, you know, presuppositions. It was deeply anti-democratic, right? Yeah. That the masses are un- incapable of knowing justice. So why should they vote? Right. Well, and, and yeah, and I mean, that's one thing that Nietzsche was really con- preoccupied with was the loss of this sense. Right? That's why you're so concerned with the noble and so on. And right. I, I, I mean, I have major issues with Nietzsche, but I don't think he's necessarily wrong in seeing that it would have deleterious effects on civilization. Yeah, it's a, a very different world when you say, wait, so I think, I think the thing, well, yeah, it's, it seems like an Aristotle. The one thing I would say is the many are capable of being virtuous, but it's certainly the case that the many are capable of being normative. Um, and I think that's, I don't know where I'm going with this. Well, in the sense of the many, the many have, right, two eyes and four limbs and so on, so on and so forth. Or two job, eyes. Jobs, right? Mm-hmm. They all work. Um, they all, they all um, clean, etc. Mm-hmm. Right. But, but Aristotle is not, and this goes back to this, you know, tension between idealism and materialism he his method is not bound by sort of his his method is not bound by he in some sense goes beyond what is to what ought to be and he's not bound by the norm the the norms set by the many his thinking is not bound by that i think he is bound in the world though so yeah certainly not the case that because it's weird, right? Like, like, especially if the if time is very flat like this, it seems like virtue should be the same thing always. 
And I mean, like even says in metaphysics, like I'm not the first person to think these thoughts. They'll be thought again after the Greeks are wiped out of a new era and someone will repeat these thoughts and then they'll happen all over again. But thinking, so, but so like the world gives us virtues, people ought to act towards them. The many don't understand that. Mm-hmm. So they need to be controlled. Well, but with regards to time, I mean, thinking about this in relationship with time, right? So we could talk about the, there's the five practical or six practical virtues, five practical virtues, and then prudence is the hinge. I think, I mean, in some sense, I don't know if Aristotle would say this, but in some sense, the the practical virtues are contingent, right? Munificence might look different in a different culture. But if we talk about the intellectual virtues, right, the whole goal of the intellectual virtues of contemplation is to escape the vicissitudes of time in some way, right? To contemplate that which is eternal. And so in that sense, I mean, I think I would say this, I don't know if Aristotle would, but I'd say, well, as, as I mean, I'm in some sense an Aristotelian, um, I would say, sure, the, the five practical virtues are contingent and, and they might look different in different cultures. They're not completely different. I think that they would be more or less the same. But the intellectual virtues, I think Aristotle would say, no, those are, regardless of time or place, those hold because it's about escaping time or place. And I think I would agree. <laughs> so I, anyway, just a, a hot take at the end of our episode. Final thoughts on Aristotle, uh, Alex or Greg? I was remembering about how uh, Aristotle's sort of division of these parts of the soul, the nutritive, perceptive, intellective, deliberative, and appetitive, just how those are later taken up by St. Thomas Aquinas in his Summa Theologiae. So it's uh, it's pretty amazing how influential Aristotle's account of soul uh, continued to be after his time. I also wonder, considering all that we've read about Aristotle's conception of the soul, uh, how how we're going to reconcile or or uh, set that against whatever we encounter in Dante's Inferno next. Yeah, I mean that's a world where perception survives death, so that'll be that'll be interesting. All right, uh, thank you for joining us in the Quixotic quest for the key to all mythologies. Uh, next week we'll be reading the first three cantos of Dante's Inferno in the translation by Robert and Jean Hollander. Good night. Good night. That was a great conversation, guys. Yeah, it was good. I Very felt good. like I really dropped off towards the, the end there, but um, yeah, this book is hard. <laughs>